Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 57 to 80. Last week, if you remember, we looked at uh, Mary's song here in Luke 1 that magnified the greatness of God. And this week, we find that the singing continues as Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, takes his turn to offer God a, a song of praise as well. So Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. And would you please follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray as we consider God's Word together. God, we do ask now that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to understand what Your Word has spoken here in this passage, that we would see the things that are true about Your plan of salvation, about Your purposes, Father, in redemptive history, that we would see the truth about Christ, and that we would believe, Father, and that believing we would be strengthened to then live each day for the glory of Christ's name. Father, we pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. I pray that You would keep me faithful to the text and that You would give Your people discernment, God, that we would hold fast to the things that are true and that Christ would be honored this morning. We do pray in His name. Amen. Friends, you can 
think of this passage today like a rich tapestry of scriptural truth. I'm sure you've seen a tapestry before. You know, those, those beautiful, magnificent fabric constructions that are woven together with thousands of colorful strands and all the strands combined together to give you this one grand, glorious picture. You've seen one of those before? Well, our passage is a bit like that. This text is a scriptural tapestry that weaves together numerous truths into one glorious picture. You may have picked up on it as we read because quite honestly, it's hard to miss. Here in these verses, Luke brings together material from all across the Old Testament. There are references to David and to Abraham, two of the most important figures in Israel's history. There are catchwords like covenant, salvation, promise, and forgiveness. There are titles such as Horn of Salvation and Prophet of the Most High. And there are references or allusions to no less than nine Old Testament books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 2 Samuel, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, and I'm almost definitely missing some. At least nine. All of that to say, friends, this text is rich. It's like a scriptural tapestry that's woven together with so many threads of history and truth. And that means, on one level, we're not going to unravel all of the fascinating threads running through this text. There will be a phrase that I don't unpack fully, because we're just not going to be able to do that. It's too rich. But on the other hand, that's actually okay. Because with a a real-life tapestry, the point of such a wonderful construction is not so much all the individual pieces, but the whole. The one unified picture that all the pieces produce together. And here in our passage, that unified picture that all the strands come together to give us, that unified picture is of the mercy of God. From beginning to end, the threads of this text combine to highlight God's mercy. You can see this, friends, in in the passage for yourself. The text basically has three sections. If you look at your Bibles there, you can see them. Verses 57 to 66, verses 67 to 75, and then verse 76 to verse 80. So three sections. And there's one thread that's running through each of those sections. It's mercy. I mean, notice it again with me. Verse 58, the people hear of the Lord's great mercy. Verse 72, God shows mercy as He promised the fathers. And then verse 78, tying it all together, the tender mercy of our God. So three sections woven together with all of these numerous threads of truth, but each section united in this one grand picture of the mercy of God, the tender mercy of our God, as verse 78 says. And so, as you might expect, that's the theme that will help us as we go through the passage this morning. I want to draw your attention to three acts of God, one from each of those sections, but most importantly, each one flowing from God's mercy for His people. So number one, in His mercy, God faithfully keeps His Word. Number two, in His mercy, God faithfully provides a Redeemer. And number three, In His mercy, God faithfully calls us to Christ. Three acts of God, each flowing from His mercy. So let's consider this rich tapestry of truth, beginning in verse 
57, in His mercy, God faithfully keeps His Word. We mentioned at the outset that this passage recounts Zechariah's song of praise to God, but before we get to his song, we need to see the reason why Zechariah can sing. And that's what Luke gives us in this opening scene. You'll remember Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth received a promise from God. They would have a son, and they were to name that son John. And all of that sounded great, except for the fact that Elizabeth was barren and Zechariah was old. And so, you'll remember, Zechariah struggled to believe God. On some level, Zechariah doubted God's Word. And in response, God struck the old priest mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He wasn't able to talk. All of that took place at the beginning of chapter 1, and now, verse 57, we get the resolution. And that resolution, friends, is remarkable, even if Luke reports it in a rather matter-of-fact way. Notice verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Don't let the brevity fool you, friends. Here we find the merciful God of heaven doing exactly what He said He would do. Despite Elizabeth's barrenness, despite the couple's old age, despite all the unlikely circumstances, God has done precisely what He promised. God has kept His Word. But God's not finished making the point. God knows that we're often slow to learn, so He makes it again in verse 58. This time from a different perspective. Notice verse 58. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So everybody sees the Son, and everybody rejoices. Now, do you remember what the angel said to Zechariah back in verse 14 of chapter 1? Gabriel said, And you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at His birth. Well, what do we have here in verse 58? We have many people rejoicing at John's birth. Do you see it, friends? Again, God is saying to His people, He's saying to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, to you and to me, God is saying, My word is certain. I always keep my promises. Listen to me, friends. In a world full of broken promises, this is a reminder we cannot hear enough. God always keeps His promises. What God says is as good as done. That's why Zechariah can talk in the past tense for the whole passage. Because it's as good as done. It cannot fail. And His promises kept in the past are the assurance of His promises kept in the future. Listen, God doesn't change. If He kept His Word to Zechariah and Elizabeth, then He will keep His Word to you and to me. This is mercy, brothers and sisters. How kind of God this morning right from the start, to take two little verses, 57 and 58, and to say to us, I'll always keep my word, and therefore, you can trust me. No circumstance, no hardship, no seemingly immovable obstacle, nothing will stand between God and the fulfillment of what He has spoken. Look, if faith feeds on the Word of God, and it does, if faith feeds on the Word of God, then what better nourishment can there be than this simple but glorious truth that God, without fail, without doubt, always keeps His Word. And therefore, we can trust Him. There's another point, though, about God's Word that I want you to see in these opening verses, and it's connected with Zechariah's faith. In verse 59, we see that everyone assumes the child's name will be Zechariah because that's what you do in Israel. You name the son after his father. But in verse 60, Elizabeth breaks custom. She has apparently communicated with Zechariah 
somehow about Gabriel's message, and Elizabeth says the child's name will be John. And that's when everybody gets confused. Verse 61, no one else in the family is named John, so why are we breaking the the tradition? Confusion sets in. So verse 62, they turn to Zechariah, who cannot speak, mind you, (laughs) and he very likely also cannot hear, considering the fact that they have to make signs to him. He can't speak, he probably can't hear. So they turn to Zechariah thinking, surely, surely, Zechariah is going to set things straight. Now, remember the context at this point. When Zechariah first heard God's Word through Gabriel, he did not believe. He questioned God. And for that, God struck him mute. So for nine months, think about this, for nine months, Zechariah has has had to wake up every morning and be confronted with the evidence of his unbelief. For nine months, Zechariah has had to look himself in the mirror and recognize that his unbelieving response was to blame for his condition. Nine months he's lived with that testimony, I don't believe God. And now, silent Zechariah is asked this question, what's the boy's name? And in verse 63, he answers. And I want you to notice his firm, decisive response. Verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. That's a change, friends. A change that's produced by mercy. There's no doubt in Zechariah at this point. He says his name is John. Not it will be John or shall be John. It is John because it's been settled for nine months already. Zechariah has gone from doubting God's Word to obeying God's Word. Do you see the movement? Brothers and sisters, Zechariah's unbelief was not the end of the story. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. God has used the entire situation to change Zechariah and to bring him to this point of humble submission to God. And in fact, Luke makes it clear that God is the one working here. Look at verse 64. Immediately, as soon as he writes John, Zechariah's mouth opens. His speech returns. And what's the first thing that he says? He blesses God. He praises God's name. And this in turn gets everybody's attention. Notice verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Friends, in Luke's Gospel, fear indicates that God is at work. And that's the sense that we have here in verse 65. Everyone recognizes that God is among them. This is no ordinary child. This has been no ordinary nine months for Elizabeth or for Zechariah. This is God's power fulfilling His Word precisely as He said He would do. He always keeps His Word. Now, I want to be clear to you brothers and sisters, that the primary takeaway of these verses is the faithfulness of God. That's the primary takeaway, and I hope you've been encouraged by that. But I also think we should be encouraged by what has happened here in Zechariah's life. I mean, aren't you glad that Zechariah's initial unbelief was not the end of the story for him? Aren't you glad that in His mercy, God used the entire process to bring Zechariah to the point where he did have confidence in God's Word? Where he did submit to God in obedience? Aren't you glad that God didn't wash His hands of him? I'm glad. You see, those nine months were God's discipline on Zechariah, and yet God has used it for His good. God didn't waste the silent months, did He? 
God didn't give up on this old priest. Instead, he taught Zechariah, he corrected Zechariah, and he brought him to this point to where he could believe. This is how God works, brothers and sisters. He doesn't change. This is how He works. This side of the new creation, we're always going to have unbelief mingled with faith. That's called being a Christian. We're always going to have unbelief mingled with faith. And yet, God doesn't leave us there. God will use any means necessary, including discipline. But whatever God does, He does it for our good. Whatever God does, it brings us to that best point in all of life and that submission to His Word. So we should be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that God always keeps His promises. And we should also be encouraged as we witness Zechariah move from doubting that truth to believing that truth. We should be encouraged because it reminds us that the faithful God doesn't waste anything. And that even His discipline, even adversity, even trials, as we read in James 1, they're all designed by the merciful hand of God to do us good. So that's the first merciful act of the Lord in this text. God always keeps His Word. The second act takes us into Zechariah's Song, specifically verses 67 to 75. In His mercy, God faithfully provides a Redeemer. In His mercy, God faithfully provides a Redeemer. You'll notice in verse 67 that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. So his song is both praise and prophecy. Again, there are so many threads of redemptive history running through these verses. But we can actually find the overarching theme right away in verse 68. Notice the opening line in Zechariah's song, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. So right away, you can see the theme of Zechariah's praise. The theme is redemption. The theme is God's work to deliver His people, to bring them out of bondage and bring them into the saving presence of God. In fact, notice in verse 68 where Zechariah says God has visited His people. You see that there? God has visited them. This is one of those threads that runs all the way back to the Old Testament. The idea of God visiting His people comes from the Exodus. When God brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, when God saved them by His own mighty hand. Genesis chapter 50, you can see the promise that God would visit His people and redeem them. So Zechariah understands that something like the Exodus, but also greater than the Exodus, is happening right now. John's birth signals that the time of deliverance is at hand. Not because John is the Redeemer, but because John is the forerunner. The one who prepares the way for the Lord to come. Deliverance is coming. Zechariah sings in verse 68. Redemption is his theme. But just to drive this home a bit more, look down at verse 71 where Zechariah makes the theme again very clear, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, friends, this is language that recalls Israel's exodus from Egypt. Psalm 106, in fact. God rebuked the Red Sea, the psalmist says, and God saved His people from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of their enemies. You see, Zechariah understands as he, as he looks at his little baby son there and as he reflects upon God's Word, Zechariah understands that salvation has dawned. The time of deliverance 
is at hand. A new and greater exodus is about to occur. And that's why Zechariah is singing. His theme is redemption. But he's not finished. As, as the old priest continues, we also see that this redemption is personal. Notice verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here's another Old Testament thread that works its way back and gets our attention. That phrase, horn of salvation, is an image of strength. Think about a, a, a mighty bull with sharp horns that's able to drive off any danger. That's the idea in verse 69. A strong warrior, a strong savior, able to fight and protect and deliver. But you'll notice this horn is linked with King David. You see it there, verse 69. Where is the horn of salvation? It's in David's house. In fact, David himself is the one who used this phrase in the Old Testament in one of his songs, Psalm 18. And that, brothers and sisters, is really the key. Zechariah is speaking here of the Messiah. The horn of salvation is the Messiah, the promised son of David who would be mighty to save. You see, Zechariah understands something that we maybe lose sight of at times. Zechariah understands that redemption is not simply a thing or an idea that God gives to people. Redemption is personal. It comes through a Redeemer. God redeems His people through a Savior, through a Redeemer, even the Messiah Himself, the promised Son of David. So note again what is happening at this point. John the Baptist has just been born. Zechariah is looking at his, his little face there of his son. And already it's clear to Zechariah what God is doing. Already John is forerunnering the Messiah. Zechariah can see where this is going. Messiah is coming and he comes to redeem the people of God. Still, Zechariah has more to sing. His theme is redemption. That redemption is personal. But also, this redemption is rooted in past promises. Look again at verse 70, where Zechariah connects the present with the past. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Friends, this is rather stunning. Zechariah understands that God's present work of raising up a Redeemer is fundamentally rooted in God's past promises. What God is doing in the present flows from what God said in the past. Or to say it another way, the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus Christ, the Messiah is the culmination of everything God said and did in the Old Testament. All of it has been leading up to this point. In fact, notice where Zechariah goes in verses 72 and 73. He goes to the patriarch of Israel, the man of faith, Abraham himself. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham. Friends, Zechariah is making a profound point here. His point is that the Redeemer, the Messiah, will fulfill God's covenant with Abraham. Remember, Genesis chapter 12, God promised to bless Abraham and through Abraham, God promised to bless all the nations of the earth. Okay, well, how's God going to keep that covenant? Through the Messiah, Zechariah says. Through this Redeemer. That's what God is doing. He is fulfilling His past promises in the present work of the Redeemer. <clears throat> now, I want to 
pause here for a moment and make a clarifying comment to you that I hope will help shed some light on how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to one another. This is a massive issue, and we're not going to solve it all right now, but I, I want you to know where I'm coming from, and I want you to hopefully have some clarity on how we should think about connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're just going to pause our exposition for a moment and just think for a second about putting those two parts of the Bible together. On the one hand, Zechariah's song here should teach us that there is continuity between God's past promises in the Old Testament and God's final provision in the New Testament. There's continuity. So that Christ is the fulfillment of God's Word to Abraham and to David and to Israel. Christ Himself. Or, to say it even more sharply, because sometimes sharp statements help make the points, to say it even more sharply, Christ Himself is the faithful Israel of God. Christ Himself is Israel in the flesh. You know, in the Old Testament, God called Israel His Son. And He expected Israel to be faithful to Him. Well, what happened time and time again throughout the Old Testament? Israel was unfaithful. They disobeyed God. They were an unfaithful son. And so, Christ comes and He stands where Israel failed. Christ is the faithful Israel of God. He is the one in whom all of those Old Testament promises find their yes and amen. So when we connect the Old Testament to the New Testament, we need to recognize that there's some level of continuity flowing across the covenants. And on the other hand, we need to also recognize that there's some level of discontinuity as well. Listen, friends, what God is doing here in Luke chapter 1 is truly and gloriously new. It's new. The coming of the Messiah is the dawning of a new era in redemptive history. The new covenant, right? The new covenant established in Christ's blood. That new covenant is actually and honestly and truly new. It's not just the old covenant repackaged and remodified. It's a new covenant. Old covenant fulfilled, including the law. The old covenant fulfilled in Christ. And now the new covenant stands at the epicenter of what God is doing in the world. God's not working anywhere else except in the new covenant. So when you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together, what do we have? We have continuity on the one hand and discontinuity on the other hand. So what holds those two things together? They're obviously in tension. What holds those two things together? The answer, friends, is the person and work of Christ. In Christ, the Old Covenant is fulfilled. And in Christ, the New Covenant is established. In Christ, God's promises find their yes and amen. And in Christ, God's people are defined and identified through their union with Jesus by faith. Any understanding of the Bible that does not put Christ at the center will ultimately fall short. In Christ, all things hold together, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And that must certainly include how we understand Scripture. It must certainly include God's redemptive movement across the covenants. There's no covenant fulfillment apart from Jesus, and yet in Jesus, God is doing something new. So, I know that doesn't solve all of the questions, but I hope it provides you some clarity. When it comes to understanding the Old Testament 
and the New Testament together, where do we start? Not with the nation of Israel, and not with a theological system, but with Christ Himself. With Christ Himself. So let's press pause on that explanation and go back to our exposition in the the passage. Back to Zechariah's song. I hope that helped clarify for you. Back to what Zechariah is singing. The theme is redemption. That redemption is personal. It's rooted in past promises. One more piece to see. Verse 74 and 75. This redemption is purposeful. It's personal. It's rooted in past promises. And it's purposeful. Notice what Zechariah says. Verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Again, we see redemption connected with deliverance. But what I I want us to notice here is the the purpose. Why is God redeeming a people through the Messiah? So that those people might serve Him with lives of godly character that glorify His name. Friends, this is another one of those Old Testament threads. Why did God choose Israel out of all the nations of the earth so that they would be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, who would lead all the other nations of the world to see and to know know and serve God. Israel failed at that task. But now through the Messiah, God is bringing that purpose to pass. In Christ, God's people are being called out. They're being identified and made holy and then sent out into the world to serve God in righteousness. This is the purpose of redemption. To live and know and serve God in His creation. Brothers and sisters, do you see here your calling as a Christian? This is what God has redeemed you to do. You exist as a Christian in order to make God known through a life of holiness and devotion to the Lord. He's called you out of darkness so that you would live for His name. This is why the New Testament epistles put such an emphasis on killing sin and becoming more like Jesus. It's not so we'll be better than all those pagans out in the world. It's so that we'll be lights shining in the darkness, showing the world that there's a Savior who's worthy of their lives. Listen, I'm convinced one of the reasons our Christian lives are often so anemic is that our perspective is too small. Our focus is too inward. But when we see God's purpose, like here in verse 75, Our lives as Christians take on an entirely new, an entirely different and much bigger dimension. It's not about me and my life and how I can avoid all the bad stuff that God doesn't like. It's bigger than that. In fact, if we just reduce Christianity to all the stuff we shouldn't do, friends, that's pathetic. It's bigger than that purpose. It's about holiness that points to God. It's about service and work and ministry that leads other people to see that there is a Redeemer who can make unclean sinners like us clean. Brothers and sisters, let's put away those small, anemic visions of what it means to live as a Christian. Let's just be done with them. And let's renew our effort to live with this grand, God-sized purpose that He's called us out of darkness to serve Him in holiness and righteousness so that the world will see there's a God who saves. Reading God's Word, gathering with the church, killing sin, growing in godliness, sharing the Gospel, working heartily as unto the Lord, none of those are small things. And in the end, none of them are even ultimately about us. There's some freedom in that. Do you see it? 
It's a freedom to say, I don't have to think about me. I can live and make God known. That's why He's delivered us from the hands of our enemies. That's why He's delivered us from Satan and sin and death and hell so that we might serve Him right here in His Word. We might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all of our days. There's freedom here, friends, in this purpose. If we'll embrace it, there's freedom. There's a kind of freedom that makes people go, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. wait. You're living for something that I don't recognize. That's right, His name is Jesus. It's about putting the Lord on display in lives of holiness. That's why we've been redeemed. It's the purpose of salvation so that God's glory might shine out in the darkness through us. In His mercy, God faithfully provides a Redeemer. So by His grace, brothers and sisters, let's resolve today. Let's be renewed today to live with that purpose. That's number two. I'm starting to sweat. I'm going to have to take my jacket off. Then it'll be like real preaching. <laughs> when I was a kid at our church, our pastor would often, in the summertime, he'd always start with a jacket and a tie, and he would lose both the jacket and the tie by the end of the sermon. He'd be really preaching. So we've seen the first two actions of God. Let's look at the last merciful act of God, which is really a summary of everything that we said, verses 76 to 80. In His mercy, God faithfully calls His people to Christ. In His mercy, God faithfully calls His people to Christ. Looking at Zechariah's song, you'll notice a shift in verse 76. You see it there? Zechariah goes from praise to prophecy as he looks forward to the ministry of his son, John the Baptist. You can see John's role very clearly in verse 76. Look what it says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way. It's striking to me that Zechariah has waited this long to mention his son. (laughs) He's waited like eight verses to mention his son. But it is fitting as well, isn't it? Because above all else, what will John the Baptist do? He will point people to Christ. He, He will prepare the way for the Messiah. And in verse 77... Zechariah clarifies how exactly John will prepare the way. Notice verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Friends, as a prophet, this is what John will do. He will proclaim God's Word and his preaching will signal that salvation is coming. That's the knowledge in verse 77 that he's talking about. The knowledge that salvation is coming. That it's around the corner. Salvation is coming and it will entail the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to see in just a few weeks that John's ministry of communicating this knowledge of salvation, John's ministry will also include a clear call to repentance. Forgiveness is at hand and therefore people should repent. We're going to see that in a few weeks. For now, we need to note that this is how John prepares the way, by preaching a message that points people to forgiveness in the Messiah. And that's what his father, Zechariah, anticipates now in this prophetic announcement. But then in verse 78, Zechariah shifts focus again. He moves from John back to the Messiah once more. Notice verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
So for one final time in this text, we see the thread that ties the whole tapestry together, the tender mercy of our God, as Zechariah says, the tender mercy of our God. It's not just mercy, it's the tender mercy. It's flowing up somewhere deep within God. Tender mercy, what is that like? I went up to the hospital this week to see Matt and Michelle, and uh, Claudia was there, and um, they were doing some treatment with Claudia, and Michelle walked over and very lightly put her hand on Claudia's hand and then kissed her tenderly on the forehead. And I thought, that's the tender mercy of God. Right? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It's the kind of mercy that meets us right there in the need and puts the hand on the other hand and kisses her on the forehead and says, it's going to be all right. That's the tender mercy of God. That's what it looks like. That's what Zechariah is describing here. It's this kind of warmth and richness that's deeply moved by those in need. And friends, that's what God's mercy is like for His people. He doesn't have to conjure up feelings of mercy. He is merciful. And that mercy is tender towards His children. So again, if you only take away one thing today, I hope it's that over everything that we've seen in Luke chapter 1, there's just this one banner, and that banner is God is merciful. He's merciful to give His people a Savior whom they need. And that mercy, friends, rescues God's people from darkness and leads them, verse 79, into the way of peace. You see that there, verse 79? It leads them into the way of peace. If you think about it, friends, that's a really fitting description of salvation. Since the Garden of Eden, God's good creation has been without peace. There's strife between humanity and God. There's futility in the creation. There's heartache and hardship in each of us. Since Eden, we've been without peace. But very soon, Zechariah says that warfare will be over and there will be peace again, just as God intended. You see, it's an image of salvation that ends the song. This way of peace that's what God is doing here in Luke 1. He's preparing to redeem His people and bring them into peace with Him once again. But there's one more phrase in verse 78 that I want to close with this morning. I know that I've asked you to do a lot of hard work in thinking with me, but one more, one more thing I want you to see in verse 78. And we'll end with this. In verse 78, you'll see that Zechariah speaks of the sunrise visiting us from on high. What is this sunrise? Well, not surprisingly, the answer comes from the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, to be exact. Now, Malachi chapter 4 also speaks of a prophet like Elijah who will prepare the way of the Lord by preaching repentance. So, John the Baptist is there in Malachi chapter 4 as well. But in that same chapter, the prophet Malachi also speaks of the Son of Righteousness rising over God's people with healing in His wings. And when that sun rises, it will mean salvation for the people of God. When that sun rises, it means that the people will be delivered from the day of judgment. And what's interesting, friends, is that in Malachi 4, the judgment they're saved from is God's judgment. Not the world's, not Assyria, not Babylon, God. They're saved from God's judgment by this sunrise that's going to come, Malachi 4. Now, look back to Luke 1 and 
I just want you to follow the progression with me. Remember, Malachi 4 talked about a prophet like Elijah and a sunrise. So follow the progression here in Luke 1. Verse 76, what do we have? A prophet of God, Most High, who will prepare the way. Verse 77, He'll prepare the way with the knowledge of salvation for God's people. Then verse 78, the sunrise comes and visits the people of God from on high. So you see, prophet, preparation, sunrise, 76, 77, 78, prophet, preparation, sunrise. Friends, Zechariah is talking here about the Messiah. The sunrise of God's salvation is the Messiah Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. When He comes, He will lead God's people into the way of peace by making peace Himself on the cross. When Messiah comes, He will dispel the darkness because He is the light of the world. And when Messiah comes, He will chase away the shadow of death by conquering death in His own resurrection. You see, Zechariah sings better than he knows. This is a prophecy, you remember. He sings better than he knows. Zechariah anticipates the work of Christ. All of these threads from the Old Testament, like this one from Malachi 4, they're all coming together in this beautiful tapestry that tells us God is going to save His people. And He's going to save them in a Redeemer. Friends, it's absolutely fitting that in this passage of a song that follows John's birth, all the attention is really about the Christ. We're singing about John, and the song is actually about Jesus. It makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? From the beginning, this has been John's role to point people to the greater one who is to come. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, then God's Word here in Luke 1 is calling you to turn from sin, to repent and trust that salvation is found in Christ alone. It's the best news in all the world that forgiveness of sins is provided for sinners like us through the blood of Christ. Won't you trust Him today? Make today the day that you bow before God confessing your sin and your inability to save yourself and trusting that only Christ can redeem you. There's a Redeemer. His name here is Jesus. If you do know Christ, that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, my sincere prayer is that this beautiful tapestry of scriptural truth has deepened your love for Christ and that in response, you are renewed in your desire to live for Him. L- listen to me, friends. I've barely scratched the surface on this passage. This is like 2% of all the awesome stuff that there is to see. We've barely scratched the surface. There's so much richness left. So much glory that remains to satisfy our soul. So won't you go to God's Word on your own and read and taste and see that the Lord is good? And then after having tasted that the Lord is good, won't you go out into the world and use your life to help other people see that the sunrise of God's salvation has come and His name is Jesus Christ. May God be praised, brothers and sisters, for He has visited and redeemed His people in the Messiah. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank